listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to historian and author Rutger Bregman. A realistic view of human nature recognizes that we are a species that have evolved to be friendly, that this is our true superpower, that we can cooperate on a scale that no other species can, and that we need to reconnect with this superpower if we want to do anything about the great challenges that lie ahead of us. Rutger shared his insights into why we have such a pessimistic view of human nature, what it means to be evolutionarily hardwired for kindness, and how radical ideas and stories can shape the future. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Throughout history, psychologists and philosophers have made the assumption that human beings are governed by self-interest. But where did this belief originate? And what if it isn't true? New evidence suggests that humanity's success might actually be based on our evolutionary bias towards kindness, cooperation, and trust. So perhaps it's time for a radical new perspective on human nature. In his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, Rutger Bregman argues how this simple idea that we've evolved to be social and a altruistic species holds the potential to radically change how society functions. So, Rutger, I want to turn this over to you. What your new book is essentially arguing is that most people, deep down, are pretty decent. And I just wonder, why is this such a radical idea? You know, it sounds quite innocent, doesn't it? Like, oh, this guy has written this happy, clevy book about, ooh, the power of kindness, isn't that nice? But if you really think it through, the assumption that most people are fundamentally decent, then you realize that it actually has quite revolutionary implications. Because nowadays, so many of our institutions are designed around the idea that most people are selfish, right? Our schools, our workplaces, our democracies, even our prisons, you name it. So if you turn this around, I think it has quite quite some radical implications. I mean, do you think humanity has a, a self-esteem crisis? I mean, there's a reason why we ended up in this position, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder how and, and why did we actually come to underestimate our capacity for, for doing good and being good? Hmm. I like that, self-esteem crisis. Well, this has been going <laughs> on for quite a long time. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, the idea that our civilization is very thin. It's only a thin veneer. And that, especially in times of crisis, we quickly reveal who we really are, right? Savages, animals, beasts, and that deep down we're all selfish. You see it with the ancient Greeks. So a really good example here is Thucydides, the Greek historian, one of the first historians that we know of, who already wrote about the plague in Athens, like 500 uh, before Christ, something around that. Around that. And uh, also wrote about a civil war near Cortira. And so he has this, these, yeah, these phrasings where he talks about yeah, how sort of human nature showed its true colors when you know, the crisis became really serious. Same is true for the Christian church fathers. So you read St. Augustine, for example, and you discover this idea of original sin, you know, that we're all born sinners. Then you start reading the Enlightenment philosophers, Thomas Hobbes, David Hume, Adam Smith, you name it, all these brilliant philosophers. And you would expect some kind of break with Orthodox Christianity, but actually their view of human nature is again quite similar. You know, they emphasize that we have to assume that most people are selfish. Then fast forward another two centuries and you look at the modern capitalist system, 
what's the you know the central dogma of our economy and our society right now i think again it's this idea that people are deep down just selfish so the veneer theory is very very deeply embedded in our culture and it comes back again and again in our novels in our plays in our films in our uh, you name it in our series it's like the water we swim in we've become really adjusted to it I mean, you say in the book, it's not just the, the films, the novels, the history books, the, the scientific research that we read, but also it's embedded into our education system. This idea that we're selfish is an assumption that's made from when we first try to work out how to navigate or interface with this world. You know, I think that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So when we talk about human nature, you're, you're talking about two things at the same time. On the one hand, you're talking about what we really are, what we really are like, you know, you're talking about our evolutionary history. And in that case, we got to talk about new evidence from biology and evolutionary anthropologists who suggest that human beings have actually evolved to be friendly. They literally talk about survival of the friendliest, you know, which means that for millennia, I was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids. So had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But on the other hand, when you're talking about human nature, you're also sort of talking about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if we buy into a certain view, then we start designing our society around that idea and we'll create the kind of people that our theory presupposes. So a simple example here is, let's assume you have a company and you believe that most of your employees are really selfish. Well, then you'll rely on bonuses and a strict hierarchy and a you know strict management culture. You won't believe in intrinsic motivation or a more egalitarian working culture. So it has like real consequences and probably people will start behaving in a certain way, a more selfish way as well. If you turn this around and if you say, well, actually, I believe that my employees have their own intrinsic motivation. They want to contribute. I don't need this hierarchical culture then you can move to a very different kind of, of organization. Um, so it's like, I'm, I'm talking about two things at the same time. It's like what we really know from science, but also about what we can actually do if we update our, our view to a more realistic view of who we are. Well, before we, we look at some of the nuances of where we went wrong, I want to look more closely at some of the biological basis for some of your arguments, because in the book, you take great care in showing how we might be evolutionarily hardwired for kindness, <laughs> for trust, and for cooperation. And you just said there, we all know the idea of survival of the fittest, but you argue this idea of survival of the friendliest. So could you explain mm -hmm. just a, a little further what you mean by that? Well, the big question of our history is, I think, why us? Why have we conquered the globe? What is so special about us? Why are we building spaceships and pyramids and cathedrals, etc.? Why do we do that? Why not the Neanderthals or the chimpanzees or the bonobos? And for a long time, people said, yeah, we must be really smart. That's probably the explanation. Like we've got these really big brains and that, that, yeah, that's probably what makes us special. Or other people said, well, we're really mean or we're very strong uh, that, or very violent or something like that. Maybe we've killed off all the Neanderthals. But then you actually look at the evidence we've got there and it's very weak. You know, we're not very smart, actually. You do intelligence tests and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a pig and usually the pig wins. Uh, if you... Uh, 
do a boxing match with a chimpanzee, well, I don't recommend <laughs> it. You know, he's, <laughs> he's going to smash you. So we're not very smart. We're not very strong. So what is our true superpower? I think it is our ability to connect with one another and to actually establish trust so that we can build really large social networks and learn from each other. This is, I think, really what distinguishes us from the other primates and the Neanderthals. Our ability basically to work together, to be friendly, uh, that is our true superpower. And it's really, yeah, you really see it in our own bodies as well. I mean, in, in some scientific evidence, it's actually suggests that that's the reason Homo sapiens survived over Homo neanderthalensis, because even though they had the bigger brains, Homo sapiens did have that ability to cooperate. And you go one step further in the book, though, and you say that, look, friendliness might actually be the reason that we have intelligence. Intelligence might actually be a byproduct of that friendliness. Exactly, exactly. So... Often when we talk about the history of innovation or technologies, we focus on specific individuals, like right? We focus on geniuses like Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton once said that if he had seen further than others, it was because he had stood on the shoulder of giants. And I'm not going to say that Newton wasn't a smart man. He obviously was, but it's not really how it works. Human innovation works by standing on the shoulder of dwarfs. That's really what we do. There's one example that I think really explains this very well. It's from the anthropologist Joseph Hendrick. And he asks us to imagine a planet with uh, two tribes. So there are two tribes uh, or two species, two primate species, as you'd say. On the one hand, you have the copycats. And on the other hand, you have the geniuses. And the geniuses are really, really smart. You know, they've got really big brains. They come up with inventions on their own. Say they learn how to, uh, to fish. They just, just find that out. But the problem is they're not very social. They don't really have a lot of friends. So when they come up with something brilliant, they just, they don't really share it. Now, the copycats, they're like us, you know, they're, they're not very smart. They're quite stupid, in fact. They, it hardly ever happens that they come up with something interesting. But when they come up with something interesting, you know, when they have an Isaac Newton among them, then boom, quickly everyone learns it because they've got so many friends. You know, they've got these really large social networks. This is sort of what made us intelligent. Not that we had sort of the bigger brains. Actually, Neanderthals have bigger brains than us, right? And actually, our, our brain size has shrinked in our evolutionary history, which is really bizarre, right? As we became smarter, in a way, sort of collectively smarter, got more inventions, you know, uh, learned how to fish, learned how to travel over the sea, you name it. Actually, our brain size shrinked. But that's because intelligence is not about individuals. It's about all of us together. Well, it's not just our brain that shrunk, it was our entire bodies. And you describe in the book how humans got both smaller, but also cuter. And you do that yeah. through coining this term, <laughs> homo puppy. Uh, Rutger, yes. what is... Very proud of that one. <laughs> well, tell me, what is homo puppy? Okay, so this is the new theory that biologists call self-domestication. We all know what domestication is, right? I think uh, we've got sheep, we've got cows, we've got pigs. And over a very long period of time, so centuries, maybe even millennia, we selected the more friendly pigs or the, friend, the tame pigs so that they were domesticated. So another example of domestication is you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua, right? Now, there's a whole list of traits that scientists call domestication syndrome. So all these domesticated species have really, they have things in common. Things like thinner bones, smaller brains, uh, sort of floppy ears. It's what, what you often see, white spots in the sort of the fur. 
and most importantly, domesticated species, they they just look cuter. They look more childish, or the, or the scientific term is pedomorphic. Now, we also know what genes are associated with domestication. And the fascinating thing is that if you look at us, right, at our DNA, at our bodies, then it's like, whoa, we're domesticated. We, we, we really, you know, check a lot of the boxes. So then the question is, who domesticated us, right? Who did it? Um, and the answer is, we did it ourselves. So we lived in an environment for thousands of years where survival of the fittest meant survival of the friendliest. So that actually the friendliest among us had the most kids. You know, they they had a bigger chance of surviving. And why? Because as a nomadic hunter-gatherer in the Ice Age, it didn't really make much sense to collect possessions, right? That's not how you survive. No, you survive by collecting friends because you can rely on friends during really hard times when there's a drought or when there's a storm or something like that. This just kept going on for centuries and centuries. And so we domesticated ourselves. You really see this in uh, skeletons that, that have been ex uh, excavated from 40, 30, 20, 10,000 years ago. You really see this process of us becoming cuter, becoming more puppyish, right? So yes, indeed. I think that the right scientific term here should be, we are homo puppy. <laughs> well, part of becoming homo puppy meant some key biological changes. And those biological changes were really set up to allow for friendship to emerge. And mm -hmm. more importantly, they were allowing us to hardwire mm -hmm. ourselves so that we could reveal our inner thoughts. And two yeah. of those that you cover in the book is, is blushing and the whites in our eyes. So why are those two things uniquely human and why do they make us homo puppy? This is for me really an astonishing thing to discover. It was actually already Charles Darwin who wrote about this, is that human beings are one of the only species in the whole animal kingdom. Maybe some parrots do it as well. There's some evidence for that. But apart from those parrots, we're the only anim uh, animal in the whole, whole animal kingdom that blush, right? Which is so interesting. If you, if you really think about this, why do we do that? How could it ever be an evolutionary advantage? to give away your feelings involuntarily to someone else. And I think the answer here is that blushing helps us to establish trust, right? It's just easier to trust someone who blushes something. Shame plays such an incredibly important role in holding together human societies. Now, another example here, you really see this as well in our, in our faces. Human beings have the most expressive faces in the animal kingdom. And uh, this, this is indeed uh, our eyes. So. I can see that you're not looking at me right now. You're looking at the camera because that looks better on YouTube. Uh, now I can see you looking at me. And this is, uh, this is really interesting, right, about, about human beings is that we can actually follow each other's gazes. If you look at all the other primates, and there are 200 primate species in total, all of them have dark around their irises, which means it's, it's not very easy to see what they're looking at. They're a bit like poker players wearing shades. <laughs> While human beings, you know, we reveal our, our gazes. And this, again, helps to establish trust. There are some scientists that's, uh, who think that this happened during this process of domestication. Well, part of this process of domestication, it isn't all positive, mm -hmm. is it? Because some of those mechanisms that made us the kindest species, it's been revealed that it also makes us sometimes the, the cruelest species. Uh, how do we contend with that? Well, that's obviously the big question that hovers over my whole book, right? 
how can human beings have ever evolved to be friendly? If, if that's really true, then how do you explain the Holocaust? How do you explain what's going on in America right now? You know, these killer cops. How, how do you explain all the violence of the, of the past centuries and millennia? And again, the irony is here is that in a book about human kindness, you have to go on for hundreds of pages about all these dark chapters in history, obviously. Now, I think we can find the beginning of an answer here if we, again, look at the self-domestication theory. So there's one researcher, Brian Hare, he's an evolutionary anthropologist in the, in the United States, who says that the mechanism that made us the friendliest species also made us the cruelest species, right? Because friendliness can morph into groupish behavior, tribal behavior, where you sort of get this in-group, out-group dynamic. Now, my own theory is that this wasn't a problem when we were still nomadic and togetherers, because that, back then we had quite flexible networks and people often switched groups. But then when we settled down, when we started this whole process that we call civilization, um, we became sedentary, we became farmers and city dwellers, that's when everything went wrong. That sort of triggered something in us I think this groupish behavior, it really went berserk. And indeed, the archaeological evidence suggests that warfare is not something we've always been doing, but actually had a beginning. For 95% of our history, when we were nomadic and togetherers, we didn't really engage in wars at all. But then when we settled down, boom, explosion of warfare. And then part of that is because of what you describe in the book as a mismatch, uh, that human beings are not mentally prepared for um, these artifacts of modern times, such as civilization. Yes, yes. So a mismatch is a concept from evolutionary anthropology, which is all about sort of recognizing that for the vast majority of our history, we were nomadic and togetherers. So our bodies have sort of evolved to adjust to that lifestyle. Simple examples of a mismatch, say, for example, the fact that we find it hard to say no to sugar when we were and together is, you know, it made sort of sense whenever you saw a, a tree that was full, full of fruit to sort of just eat it all because that was sort of a, a good protection for the, for the future, you know. Uh, but now in a modern supermarket, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not very adaptive, but sort of evolution didn't have time to catch up with this because I mean, we've only lived in this period that we call civilization for only 10,000 years. So that's like a very short period of time, obviously. And my argument is that indeed some of the really dark things that have been happening in the past 10,000 years, the ethnic cl uh, cleansing, the genocides, the warfare, hierarchy, patriarchy, you can also see them as mismatches. To, to just talk about inequality, we know that nomadic hunter-gatherers, we know this from ethnographic field reports from anthropologists who lived with uh, these kind of uh, people. We know that wherever they live, whether it's in the Kalahari Desert, in, you know, in Namibia or in Alaska, you know, very different kind of environment, we know that they're, they're almost always quite egalitarian. And humbleness is really a prerequisite if you want to survive. Because as I said, it's all about collecting friends and people don't like uh, sort of arrogant and narcissist people. So imagine Donald Trump in prehistory, probably wouldn't have survived for very long. But then we ended up in a very different kind of world, a more hierarchical world where there was more inequality. And suddenly this whole process of survival of the friendliest changed in a process that you could describe as survival of the shameless. And I think that's a pretty good description of the current state of politics as well. 
we're going to get a little bit more into that uh, later, but to help us sort of understand where things went wrong, in the book you pit two thinkers against each other. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, you've got Hobbes, Mm -hmm. who claims that civil society saved us from our baser instincts. And then on the other hand, you've got Rousseau, who claims that deep down we're all good and selfishness emerged with the invention of civilization. So, Rutger, who do you think was right? Well, Hobbes is often described as the realist, right? As the father of realism. He argued that in the state of nature, we were these violent creatures uh, and that our lives back then were nasty, brutish and short. And his adversary, uh, Rousseau, I mean, they never met each other, but they're always pitted against each other in the boxing ring. Um, his adversary was, was Rousseau, the, the French philosopher. And he made you know, the complete opposite argument. He said, no, actually in the state of nature, life was pretty good, but civilization was the real disaster. We should never have gone that road. And there's this wonderful description. There's this wonderful paragraph, very well written. Rousseau was a great writer as well uh, in his discourse on inequality, where he says the moment that the first man, it was probably a man, that the first man (laughs) said, this piece of land here, that's mine. Uh, that's when we should have said, no, 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 don't listen to him, right? That's where everything goes wrong. And Rousseau has always been described by many commentators as the romantic, right? As as the revolutionary sentimentalist, as not a very realistic guy. But then for this book, I started going over all the latest evidence we have from anthropology and archaeology. And at some point, I thought, you know what? I got to call my book Rousseau Was Right. (laughs) Because, (laughs) you know, on many points, he actually was, especially about this transition from hunter-gathering to farming. I mean, Rousseau had it all right, actually. When you look at society today, it does feel like Rousseau had a point. And I want to talk a little bit more about the impact of civilization because it feels like the minute the human species began settling in one place and mm-hmm. amassing private property, this is where our problems began. So what sort of impact did civilization have on human beings? How did it change our relationship hmm. with strangers? How did it change our relationship with nature and and lead to viruses and death mm-hmm. and all of yeah. these things that you feature in the book? Yeah, it's, it's one big shit show. That's basically what it is. So let's start with our health. We know that the nomadic together lifestyle was quite healthy. You know, you had a varied diet, a bit of fruit, a bit of vegetables, a bit of meat. So that was good. Uh, You also had quite a bit of exercise because you moved around all the time. Then uh, if you look at the organization of those societies, not bad, you know, quite egalitarian. You could almost call them proto-feminist. The work week was not very long, 20 hours, maybe 30 hours uh, max. And then it was also quite peaceful. So as I said, there's almost no evidence for warfare among nomadic hunter-gatherers. That doesn't mean they were not violent. I mean, they were humans, right? So sometimes they were jealous or aggressive and they had sociopaths and psychopaths. So that's always been with us. But then you look at the transition, right? And you look at the farmers and the people who started to live in villages and cities and their lives were so much worse, right? Their health deteriorated, their diet was much less varied, you know, like grain in the morning, grain in the afternoon, grain in the evening, always grain. Then you had to work really hard for that. No pain, no grain. Uh, (laughs) Often you paid another high price as well in terms of infection diseases. If you think about all these great and terrible infection diseases, polio, malaria, the plague, COVID-19, 
these are all civilized diseases because we started to live too close to our animals to and to our domesticated animals. So yeah, again, uh, people started dying all the time from from epidemics. But it's, it got even worse because also the era of hierarchy and patriarchy started, right? There, when people settled down, they started amassing property and then they invented the idea of inheritance. So, uh, you know, kids would get the property from their parents and we know that, you know, this builds up and builds up over the generation. Then at some point, uh, a kind of status differences became, became also hereditary and... Uh, yeah, uh, then these rulers started raising armies and started fighting with each other. Uh, so yeah, you really see this this whole process of uh, warfare also starting. The the archaeological evidence is quite convincing there. So it's just, as I said, it's just one shit show, basically. <laughs> well, it feels like civilization isn't the only thing to blame here, because it's really civilization plus power. Mm-hmm. It, it's how civilizations eventually are governed, because somewhere along the line, we realized that these new cities and these new states needed leaders. The issue was the sorts of folk who became leaders. Yes. How is it really that power is the thing that's corrupted civilization, not civilization itself. Because I want to play devil's advocate and allow for us to be a little bit supportive of civilization here. It's done a lot of good things. It just happens that... I I know that some people at this point may think, these guys are using highly advanced technology to talk to each other, you know, even though they're hundreds of kilometers away and they're, you know, sort of talking about how we should be hunter-gatherers again. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm just saying that if you look at the last 10,000 years of our history, that for the most part, civilization was a disaster. And it's only very recent, you know, basically after the Second World War, that things started improving for most people. And yes, we are now richer and we are healthier and we are wealthier than ever, but maybe we're also dancing on top of a volcano, right? We don't know how sustainable it is. Can we still live like this two centuries from now? I don't know. And what is two centuries on the whole history of our species, right? Yeah, but the question about power, If we look at leadership among hunter-gatherers, as I said, it was all about humbleness. So obviously they had leaders, but leadership was temporary and you had to prove that you were really the right man or woman for the job, right? This is what anthropologists call achievement-based inequality, which makes sense, right? If you're really better at something like a better storyteller or a better hunter, then it makes sense that people listen to you. But then as we made the transition we came up with sort of status-based inequality or, or hierarchy-based inequality, like very, very different kind of thing. You also started to getting different kind of leaders. And the whole process of the corruption of power also started playing a very important role. This is sort of uh, the other, I think, crucial dynamic that I talk about in my book. On the one hand, most people are pretty decent, but on the other hand, power corrupts. Power is this incredibly dangerous drug that disconnects you from the social network, quite literally. If you put powerful people in brain scanners, you'll discover that the regions that are, uh, you know, involved with empathy, they don't really work anymore. Blushing, they don't, they don't do that anymore. I mean, imagine Boris Johnson blushing. Imagine <laughs> Bolsonaro, Donald Trump blushing. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? So exactly the qualities that made us so successful as a species, you know, our ability to connect, to work together, to blush, to see each other in the eye, et cetera, et cetera. Leaders, if they're really under the influence of this drug that we call power for too long, they lose them, right? And that is, uh, I think, the tragedy that, that we see happening so often in the past and still today. 
it feels like there's a feedback loop here. An individual rises to become a leader and then power corrupts and they mm-hmm. uh, become more and more ingrained in that personality type. But why do you think it is that egomaniacs, opportunists, narcissists, sociopaths, how did they, the shameless, mm-hmm. let's just call them the shameless, how did they rise to become our leaders? Why did we allow that to happen? Well, as I said, for the biggest part of our history, shamelessness was a very dangerous thing to be, right? If you were shameless, Mm. ah, you wouldn't survive for long. But nowadays it seems to be an advantage because you can do things that the other people, they just can't because they would be so ashamed, right? And and we see it on the television all the time. We see leaders doing things that like, God, why, like Dominic Cummings, why isn't he gone yet? It's just, <laughs> he must be, like, that's the kind of shamelessness. Most of us would be sort of in the corner of a room, like, okay, sorry, <laughs> but he's still there. So we've created an environment, a kind of democracy, we call it a democracy, and also a mediocracy, where this, yeah, the shameless people can do things that other people just can't. And I think that's a real indictment of our current political system. And it, it's a suggestion that we should try and move to a real, a genuine democracy that will be much more egalitarian and will be much better at keeping those uh, who are in power in check. On, on reading the book and you mentioning uh, uh, blushing and how the leaders rise to shamelessness, I, I couldn't help but think, I wonder if that's why Donald Trump uses so much fake tan to hide his <laughs> ability to blush. And I think it's interesting what you also say in the book is how we used to deal with the shameless members of our tribe. Those who develop those superiority complexes, mm-hmm. they were cast out of the yeah. tribe. Yeah. Uh, do you think that we should do the same with billionaires? Huh. <laughs> well, you know, you know what my position is. Uh, yeah, I think we should well. tax the hell out of them, right? I think that billionaires are, how would we call it? A policy failure, right? Billionaires shouldn't exist. I think the fact itself that billionaires are there, it proves that capitalism is failing. A, a healthy kind of capitalism would spread the wealth around, right? Would make sure that everyone has a certain amount of venture capital so they can start a new job, move to a different company and uh, make their own choices in their lives. If a billionaire exists, that suggests that someone is rent-seeking. You know, someone is just collecting rents. No person can be so brilliant or so smart whatsoever. And remember, we're all dwarfs anyway. I mean, individually, human beings are not that special. Almost all of the wealth that we get, we get because of the work of someone else, right? 60% of our income is dependent on, uh, you know, the country in which we live, which is pure luck. Then there's like 10% gender, 10% race. Then you've got like 20% socioeconomic, like, like your wealth, etc. I, I don't know, like real skills, real, like your, your, the real effort you put in yourself, maybe that's like 5%. And even then you could argue, you know, philosophically, does the free will really exist? Right? Is, isn't that also just a matter of the right, getting the right genes and being lucky there? So um, I think that in a healthy, a sane society, uh, you have much smaller differences in wealth. And the burden of proof is always on the rich. So the rich have to prove that we really need this kind of inequality, that everyone will benefit from that. Uh, and if not, then, it's, then, it's, then it can't be justified. Well, let's have in, in the 
theme of your book. Let's have a little bit of empathy for those in power for a second, because what they're really caught in is the power paradox. Mm-hmm. For them, power is this corrupting force, and perhaps it's even similar to a psychological disorder, this Machiavellianism that they seem to possess. Do you think we should be more empathetic for people who end up in these trap situations? We should consider them very uh, the lost and, and lonely in this uh, position of power. Is there a way perhaps we as a collective can help? <laughs> I like the <laughs> suggestion. So I always think we should make a, a, diff- a distinction between sort of condoning and understanding, right? Mm-hmm. And this is even true for people who do, who do the most horrible things. I've got a chapter in my book about terrorism, right? Which you would never want to condone in any way. But I do want to understand why someone blows him or herself up, right? Why do suicide bombers do what they do? And if you start researching this, you'll discover that many of them do it, not because they're ideologically motivated, but actually the opposite. Um, they don't really know a lot about the Islamist ideology, for example. There were people going to Syria with a book like Quran for Dummies in their backpack, right? They had no idea what they were doing there. So why did they still do it? Because they were motivated by comradeship and friendship, and they wanted to be part of something bigger. They wanted to have some kind of destiny in their lives. That's not condoning. That is understanding. It's Mm. understanding the kind of systems that create this behavior. And I think we should do exactly the same thing with those in power, right? It's sometimes important, though, to use the power of shame, right? Sometimes uh, there need to be casualties. I know that in this era of of Twitter and social media, the group can go overcorrect a little bit. You know, we've seen the incident in um, Central Park a couple of weeks ago, you know, with this woman and this terrible racist behavior in which she, she sort of faked that she was attacked by an African-American man and called the police. And, you know, she was destroyed in the, in the days, you know, she quickly lost her job. And, and the man himself, you know, the birder later said that she, he sort of felt that it was maybe a bit too much, right? That her whole life had been destroyed over, over this one, even though still horrible incident. But then I think, you know, maybe that's collateral damage. Maybe that just happens. Shame can be really a nasty thing. You know, think about the shame of poverty. But then on the other hand, imagine a society without shame. That would be hell, right? It's a, shame is, is a very important force that sort of glues our society. And uh, yeah, if we need to shame those at the top, so be it. The problem then becomes, how do you shame the shameless? I think <laughs> yeah. uh, Donald Trump's armor is the fact that he he feels no shame. That's the sure, reason sure. he's able to maintain yeah. his power. And there's so many ways in which those in governance are able to maintain their power, whether it's through war or even through religion. And you focus in the book on the idea of God and how God emerged to keep tabs on the masses. In Mm -hmm. other words, God became this all-seeing eye. If we weren't able to look each other in the whites of our eyes anymore to work out whether we trusted each other, then we needed some overarching force to be looking at what we're doing. And it feels like in a secular society, uh, God is now the NSA or or social media (laughs) shaming. So how do we overcome these ways of power being maintained? Is it even possible? Well, let's go back to how our forefathers and mothers did it, right? Let's go back to the nomadic hunter-gatherers. They mostly relied on the power of shame. Now, if that didn't work anymore, they would expel these shameless people from the group. And if even that wouldn't work, if someone would be like really a sociopath or psychopath, then that person would be executed by the group. 
Now, I'm not saying that we should go back to execution, but yes, at some point, you need to find some way to expel these, these people. Now, normally in a democracy, we do that with elections, right? But then, you know, if you look at the US, the question is really, is that still a democracy? Because the majority votes for one candidate and we elect the other candidate, right? So that is, that is pretty depressing. I don't have, obviously, I don't have all the solutions there. I, I just think it's important to emphasize here that, yeah, we've um, strayed quite far from the original uh, setup and that, uh, yeah, holding those, uh, keeping those in power in check is so important. And therefore, we need to think really hard about how we redesign our democracies. Well, there's an Easter egg within the book because you almost suggest there is a way to overcome this power by by doubling down on what those in power fear the most, which is hope. So what do you mean by that? Well, if you think about this theory, you know, that's been so influential in our culture, especially in Western culture, the idea that civilization is only a thin veneer, that theory has always been in the interest of those in power. And you see it happening right now in America. Those at the top, you know, the, the, from the police to Donald Trump, they want us to believe that, you know, we should be afraid of our fellow citizens. You know, they can start rioting anytime and we need the police and the army to restore law and order, right? We need the Leviathan, as, as Thomas Hobbes would have called it. So the cynicism, the cynical worldview has always been used as a legitimization of power differences, of inequality and of hierarchy. Because if we can actually trust each other, you know, if we do believe that most people are pretty decent, then we don't need them anymore. Then we don't need all these CEOs and managers and kings and monarchs and queens and generals and you name it. And we can move to a very different kind of society. So, yeah, as I said earlier, it may sound quite innocent, this idea about human decency and kindness. But if you really think it through, it means a revolution. Well, this is the the broader theme in the book. This is the bigger message that personally I got from the book, which is the idea that ideas can become reality. And you say yeah. in the book, we are what we believe, we find what we go looking for, and, we, and what we predict is what comes to pass. So what is the power of ideas and stories in actually creating the sorts of futures that we want to see? I think that we human beings, we often become the stories that we tell ourselves. And so for centuries, maybe even for millennia, we've told ourselves quite cynical stories. One example I give in the book is the story of Lord of the Flies, you know, one of the most famous novels of the 20th century. William Golding, the British author in 1954, published this book that is about kids that shipwreck on an island and quickly turn into savages. Right? Another example of veneer theory. Look, here you have these kids who went to a really good British boarding school, you know, very well behaved, but then you give them the freedom to do whatever they want on this island and, you know, they, they become very violent very quickly. Millions of kids around the globe had to read this, you know, for school, especially in America and, uh, and the UK. So for this book, I wondered, has it ever really happened? You know, can I find a different story about real kids who really did shipwreck on an island? And after a lot of research, I actually found one example. Uh, in 1965, uh, the island of Tonga, island group of Tonga, there were six kids who were uh, students of an Anglican boarding school. 
and they didn't like school. They thought it was boring and they hated the school meals. So they said, you know what? We're going to go on an adventure. We'll borrow a boat and, uh, you know, we're just going to go exploring. Now, the first night they ended up in a storm. They drifted for eight days and they shipwrecked on this island called Ata, which is a volcanic island, really like a, a rock island that sticks out of the ocean. And somehow they managed to survive there for 15 months. And how did they do it? Well, by behaving in exactly the opposite way of the kids in the fictional Lord of the Flies. So the real Lord of the Flies kids, they work together really well. You know, there were uh, two of them who would be on the lookout, two would be tend to the garden and two would be cooking. Sometimes they ended up in fights, but then what would they do? One would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit and then come back and say sorry. They survived in this way for 50 months, even though there were really hard times, right? At one time, one of the children broke a leg and they actually healed that with traditional medicine. Actually, there were storms. Sometimes they were really thirsty, but then they were rescued at one point by an Australian captain named Peter Warner. And I managed to track down this captain and two of the original kids who are now 70 years old. And so they told me the story of what really happened. And you know what? They're still the best of friends today. Uh, Yeah, they go out fishing every now and then. And even more exciting, now Hollywood is going to make a movie about this so that finally we can get a bit more hopeful and optimistic story about what happens when gets shipwreck on an island. Now, obviously, I know this is not a scientific experiment, right? And I don't know if any uh, parent would ever say, well, take my kids and drop them on an island uh, for, for the sake of science. Yeah. But it is a fascinating story. And so if we still tell millions of kids the fictional Lord of the Flies, right, if they have to read that for school... Uh, it's fine. I think it's a, in a way, it's a good novel. I mean, it didn't win the, win the Nobel Prize for nothing. Uh, but then let's also tell them about what really happened when real kids shipwrecked on a real island, right? I think that our kids deserve to know that as well. In, in many ways, I mean, the thing I worry about with that story is whether Hollywood is going to sensationalize it and it's going to become a mashup of uh, mm. the real story and Lord of the Flies. But uh, really, when you're looking at the nuances of how these ideas affect culture, you look at this thing called nocebo. Mm-hmm. Now, we're all aware of placebo, but nocebo is the negative version of that. And that seems to function uh, so much in society. And why is that? Well, if we start with placebos, I think that many people don't realize just how how big placebo effects can be, right? They're really, really important in healthcare. If you, for example, look at antidepressants, uh, there is some evidence that they work, but the placebo effect, that's where we have the real good evidence for, right? Uh, and this is true for so many things in healthcare is that the placebo effect that just people believe that something's being done, something's, someone's helping them. This, this really works. And I think, again, there's probably an evolutionary reason for this, right? Because I don't know, uh, just the, the, uh, the feeling of that someone's helping you that is already in a way is, is healing. And we also know that the more extreme placebos have a bigger effect. So an injection, for example, is a more effective placebo than just a small pill. And one of the most effective uh, placebos is called sham surgery. So what you do then is, yeah, you, you bring someone, uh, uh, in an unconscious state and, uh, yeah, then when the person wakes up, you say, you know, it was a huge success, the whole operation, and you didn't actually do anything. You just went to get a coffee. And we've got some really good evidence that in, in, in a huge amount of cases, that this works almost as well, or sometimes, uh, yeah, or gets like a similar result uh, as to the real thing, the real surgery. Now, 
This works one way, but it also works the other way. And this is indeed what we call the nocebo. If people believe they'll get side effects from a certain drug, for example, if the doctor says, oh, beware your side effects, they're probably going to develop it because you get what you expect. And I think that our view of human nature works a little bit like either a placebo or a nocebo. So if you believe that most people are pretty decent, then you're probably going to treat people in that way. And that's what you're going to radiate, right? That's sort of your whole attitude to life. And that's going to be contagious. Everything is contagious in, in human societies. Uh, but then if you sort of choose the nocebo and have a more cynical view, then that can spread as well. <laughs> when, when you're talking, it just reminds me of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's idea of pronoia. Uh, paranoia is you believe everybody is against you. Pronoia is the idea that everybody is secretly out to help you. Um, <laughs> but but you, you mentioned cynicism very briefly. I think there. that's more realistic though, pronoia. <laughs> well, uh, I, I believe so too, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I have my suspicions rather than my beliefs. Um, when it comes to this idea of cynicism, though, which you mentioned briefly, cynicism is just so overpowering societies, especially mm -hmm. today. And in a weird sort of way, cynicism has become that theory of everything. And we're constantly caught in that trap of the cynic always being right. How do we overcome that? I mean, surely you must have had cynical kickbacks to the sort of ideas that you've presented in this book. I mean, what are the challenges of standing up for human goodness when the, the opponent really is the cynic? Hmm. We often equate realism with cynicism, right? And we tend to think that sort of the cynical pessimist professor in his armchair talking about, oh, human nature and how it's all so dark and everything will go to hell. Um, we often tend to look at that and think, oh, that, that's, that sounds really wise. That's really smart. That's like a real intellectual over there. It's also when you make prophecies of doom, like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. That's going to be a disaster. Um, it's always fine. It's always fine. If it doesn't happen, then you can say, oh, uh, it's because of uh, I warned everyone for it. And if it does happen, then you can, yeah, see, I, it did happen. The, the sort of the, the people who have, are hopeful or optimistic, they are in a very different situation, right? They are right, but could be wrong any moment. And people always expect, yeah, okay, maybe you're right. it's true right now, but actually just wait, just wait. It's just around the corner. And so what I try to do with this book is to redefine what it means to be a realist. I think that the cynics are really naive. And I believe that it's, it is realistic to be hopeful. I'm not saying that people are angels or anything. I mean, clearly we're capable of the most horrible things. But a realistic view of human nature recognizes that we are a species that have evolved to be friendly, that this is our true superpower, that we can cooperate on a scale that no other species can, and that we need to reconnect with this superpower if we want to do anything about the great challenges that lie ahead of us, whether it's the current pandemic or climate change. So, so in other words, what you're saying is what you assume in other people is eventually what we will hopefully get out of them. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is simply what it is. And in a way, I mean, it's almost ridiculously simple, right? There's at one point, someone said to me, Rodger, this is the secret. Like you can just, you know, the, the hugely popular book promoted by, by Oprah Winfrey, like, oh, if you just want something, you can just ask the universe and it will happen. Uh, now that's obviously total bullshit. And it's a way to legitimize very uh, uh, big inequalities. But in this case, yes, you have to you have to understand that ideas have performative effects. You know, ideas are never merely ideas. You can't just describe the situation without changing the situation at the same time.
I guess capitalism is our best example of that. That is a fiction that has become a reality. So why not create other fictions that potentially could become a reality. Yeah. Uh, as we're waiting for questions to come in, Rutger, I want to talk about some of the case studies in the book because, I mean, there's almost hundreds and thousands of potential case studies that you could have included mm-hmm. in the book of where we've seen people cooperating on a massive scale. Uh, but the thing that unites all the case studies that you use and often unites some of those case studies that are out in the world is that they go un recognized. Why Mm -hmm. is it that we often hide the examples of where catastrophes, for example, bring out the best in people? Mm. Why are we so often told a different story by the media from what the research itself is presenting? Well, there's a very strong negativity bias, not only in us, you know, Uh, we tend to focus more on the negative than on the positive, Uh, but also indeed in, in our information systems. So if you look at the news, well, the news is obviously mostly about things that go wrong, you know, about crises, corruption, terrorism, you name it. And there's even a term for this in uh, psychology. So psychologists talk about this whole concept of mean world syndrome, which you get if you've watched too much of the news and and if you've consumed too much CNN and Fox News. Again, I think it's important to keep in mind here is that those at the top, they want you to watch CNN and Fox News all day because that'll make you scared. And it's much easier to rule people who are scared. Here, I think it's important to plug out and to think really carefully about what information you're putting in your heads. We think a lot of these days about the kind of food we put in our bodies. We should devote just as much attention or maybe even more to to the question, what are we actually putting in our heads? Is it making us cynical? Is it making us anxious? Or does it actually give us energy to do something and, and, and help create a better world? We have our first question from uh, YouTube, which is really focused on some of the potential solutions that you offer in the book. And it's from David Wood, who asks, uh, your book gives examples of participatory democracy involving members of society and decisions about things like budgets, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, do you see these examples as growing more influential or losing their power? Hmm, that's a great, great question. And to be honest... I'm not entirely sure. So this whole movement around participatory democracy, it started at the end of the 80s. Porto Alegre was uh, really uh, path-breaking, doing path-breaking work here. It's a city in Brazil uh, where at a point like 20, 25%, something like that of the city's budget was being, well, it was basically a participatory budget. So average citizens could decide what it would be spent on. And since then, there's, there's a count from a couple of years ago that said that 1,500 cities around the globe now do it. But uh, if anyone has uh, like more recent data on whether this is growing or declining, etc., I'd be really curious to see that. My feeling is that the, the, the amount of attention, sort of also the amount of intellectual energy and the interest of policymakers in it is increasing. There's one book that I really recommend here. It's written by, uh, well, I must say, it's a good friend of mine, uh, David Van Rybroek. He's a Belgian intellectual. And the book's called Against Elections. And it it's really uh, sort of helps us to imagine a different kind of democracy. So often we say, oh, democracy, that's just elections. That every four year, you know, having the chance to, to vote for someone and that, or to kick someone else out, right? It's a very limited idea of what a democracy can be like. And so what David does in that book, he sort of goes back to the original philosophy of the Greeks who said that elections are actually very undemocratic because, you know, they can be ruled by those who have a lot of money, right? And can try and sway the elections. And a real democracy randomly selects citizens from the population to be a politician every now and then. Now, that sounds quite crazy, 
but there have been a lot of experiments with that and it works really well in practice. I mean, in many ways, some of the solutions that you offer in the book are a return to the idea of the commons. You say it's one of the ways we can move from cynicism to engagement, from polarization to trust, exclusion to inclusion, complacency mm-hmm. to citizenship, corruption to transparency, self-interest to solidarity, inequality to dignity. I mean, you're really a proponent of the idea of democracy through the commons. Yeah, and like genuine democracy. So if you look at the original meaning of the word, right, you go back to the Greek, demos kratos, it's about the people ruling. It's not about the people, you know, sitting on a couch and watching Netflix or the news or the reality show that we call politics. No, it's about actually participating. It's about joining. It's about, you know, making decisions for yourself. The problem here is that often the media hates this kind of democracy. They really hate it. You know, there was a show in the 90s in Britain that was called the People's Parliament, and they randomly selected uh, people from the population to discuss really controversial issues like, um, I don't know, drug policies or taxes or inequality, you name it, right? Very controversial. And these people were left-wing, right-wing, rich, poor, young, old, and they were just asked to have a discussion about that. And why did the media hate it? Why did Channel 4 uh, pull the plug on uh, after the first season? Well, because they, their discussions were just really rational and they come up, came up with these very reasonable compromises. It worked really well. So it was very boring compared to the, the show that we call normally call politics. This actually works. We have another question from YouTube. Uh, this time it's really asking about how long will these changes actually take? How many generations do you think it will take to establish altruistic motives as the social norm? How do you think this would be achieved? Do you think it's going to be something that we'll have to do through uh, parenting or education, mm-hmm. for example? Well, I think that we just have to do it with the way we've been designed by evolution right now. I'm not in favor of eugenics. Is that the English word, right? It's sort of artificially that the state takes a role in sort of deciding who can have kids and who can't. We do know that it can happen relatively quickly. So there's one really famous experiment that I talked about, uh, talk about in the book with silver foxes, uh, a species that had never been domesticated. And then this experiment started in Russia with a, a Russian scientist called Dmitry Belyaev, who selected sort of the the friendliest among these wild silver foxes. And just in a couple of generations, he already started to see this domestication syndrome that I talked about earlier. So he selected for friendliness and actually he got smarter uh, foxes as well. But this is obviously not, not something that obviously not something we can do right now. But what we can sort of acknowledge is that our nature is obviously highly flexible. Right? And we can try and design different kind of institutions that will bring out the best in us, that will focus on you know, the better angels of our nature. That'll take some time. So um, as a historian, you never really look at like what's going to happen next year or two years from now. You, you, you think in decades. But then you know, quite a lot can happen. And I, I, I really sense a shift in the zeitgeist if, if I look at the last, say, 10 years. I think there's a new generation coming. I mean, in the, in the 90s, you were avant-garde when you were, you were cool when you were a cynic. That was really cool in the 90s. That's not the case anymore. Cynicism is out, hope is in. I, I really think you can see that right now. You can just look at the millions of people protesting right now in the United States or the massively successful climate justice movement that was started by a 16-year-old Swedish girl. There's, a, there's really something changing here. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, climate crisis because there's another question from YouTube, which 
asks whether uh, the climate crisis is really a symptom of our selfishness. Is it our selfishness that's led to the climate crisis, or is it more of our ability to be short-sighted towards the long-term threats? Mm. Is it a failure of our trust in experts, I think is the uh, the question that's mm. being asked here. Well, there's so many things going on at the same time, obviously. <laughs> Let's imagine that you were a god, right? You were an all-powerful, all-knowing god. And another god <laughs> would give you the task to come up with a problem that would be almost or pretty much impossible for humanity to solve. Like the most difficult problem for humanity to solve. I think something like climate change would probably be it, right? Because our behavior right now has effects decades from now. It's everything, what everyone does in the whole world contributes a tiny little bit. So if we can solve this, then I think we can solve pretty much everything, you know? I'm very anxious about this whole thing, you know? Uh, if you just look at, you know, the latest state of the science, it's pretty clear that we have to do something that has never been done before in peacetime, right? We need to totally restructure and revolutionize our economy. We need to halve carbon emissions in 2030 and, and move to zero in 2050. It's, if you just look at the, what a graph like that would look like, it's, it's pretty astonishing. But then on the other hand, if you just go back five years and see how much progress we made in that very short period of time, very impressive. It has become a much more urgent subject to so many people. The technology is, is improving at a very rapid pace. Also, politically, we see a lot of progress, not in the United States, I know that, but I think that Europe, Europe is actually really going to lead the way here. European Union is has just launched a very ambitious climate plan, you know, the New Deal. They always sort of have to steal concepts from, from the Americans. You know, they can't come up with their own concepts. But anyway, it's called a New Deal, Green New Deal. And um, Europe is such a large market, right? 500 million consumers that it can be quite powerful by, by introducing laws that just the whole, the rest of the world will have to abide by as well. Because manufacturers, they don't want to make a different car for Europe and for the United States and for Latin America. So yeah, if, if there's a really strict environmental law in Europe, then other regions of the world often have to follow. There's a new book about this. I, I can't remember uh, the author's name, but it's called The Brussels Effect. Really powerfully make this argument that actually uh, we hear a lot in the news about how weak Europe is, that it's a failure, blah, 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 it's falling apart. I really think that's nonsense. I think that Europe is, uh, has many failures, especially uh, our, uh, our currency. But if you think about climate change, it's 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 one of our big hopes, actually. We have another question from uh, YouTube from Maria. This time it's about the individual versus the collective. And she says, so individual optimism is a political act. Isn't this delegitimizing collective action? Whether the change really comes from us as individuals or mm. us as the collective? I think that individually, we should be way less optimistic, actually. I, I'm not at all into self-help or, I mean, I couldn't resist writing about a couple of rules for, life's, uh, uh, rules for life at the end of the book, if you really adopt this view of human nature. But I mean, real change always comes from the collective. It always comes uh, from, you know, the moment that we uh, yeah, redesign our institutions. People are produced by their collective institutions. So I often think that we have too much individual optimism and too much collective pessimism, and we should turn it around. You know, collectively, we can be a bit more optimistic, or I would say hopeful, while individually, you know, cut yourself some slag. You can't always achieve what you want, and that's fine. 
<laughs> I think that's that's quite important actually. You can't always achieve what you want, but you'll find sometimes that the outcome is what you need. Um, so we have another question from YouTube at uh, this time about the current situation in the U.S. and they ask, uh, can you please elaborate a bit about the current situation in the U.S. regarding police brutality and how the system uh, compares to European countries? How is this, I guess, an example of how power corrupts and how does the broken windows theory hmm. come into this? Hmm. I know you feature the broken windows theory uh, in the book. Yeah, great question. So I first want to emphasize that racism exists in the Netherlands in Europe as well, right? We have very deeply embedded institutional racism. So it's not that these things only happen in, in America. But I must also admit that, you know, from a Dutch perspective, if you, <laughs> if you do watch CNN, uh, it is, you know, quite horrifying and shocking. And it's, it's hard to imagine this scale of savagery from police, right? And it's interesting to go a bit into police tactics here or different philosophies of policing. I think that police departments in the US, they're mostly, well, I think you can describe them as really crap, right? So on average, a training as a police agent in the US takes around 18, 19 weeks, which is, if you think about it, that's crazy. It's an incredibly important and difficult job. And then 18, 19 weeks, you can be an agent, an officer. It's crazy. In most European countries, it takes like two, three years or even longer. Then how violent they are and that they all carry these weapons is from, again, from a European perspective, it looks crazy. In London, for example, 90% of all the cops, they don't even wear guns because the idea is that, again, sort of what you assume and what you radiate is what you get. So if you start walking around the streets, you know, with heavy armor and guns, then, you know, you're going to bring something out in people that you probably don't want to bring out. In my book, I also talk about the Norwegian prison system that is really the complete total opposite of how everything is organized in, uh, in the US. The Norwegian inmates get the freedom to uh, uh, basically relax and socialize with the guards. They can... Uh, and make music. They've got their own music studio, own music label. It's called Criminal Records. It turns out that these institutions are very effective. So in Norway, people come in as a criminal and they come out as a citizen. They have like a 40% higher chance of finding a job. In the US, it's the opposite. You've got really expensive taxpayer-funded institutions that make citizens into criminals. It's bizarre if you think about it. It's 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 <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's like Kropotkin, the anarchist uh, thinker, called prisons universities for crime, and that's that's basically what they are in the U.S. Uh, and it's funded by the taxpayer. So I think you can completely turn it around. So in 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 the case of prisons, you would have uh, a much more rational system, like in Norway, with a very low recidivism rate, so a very small chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And in the case of policing, you would move to something that we call community policing, when the police officer becomes something of a social worker, right? Where it's really important that you know the community, that you become friends with the grandmothers and the aunts and the uncles, that you really have your connections in the whole neighborhood. So they are your allies and they can help you with doing something about serious crime. Now, the US is in many ways very far removed for that. So my feeling is that maybe you just need to kill the beast first and then start over again. So maybe first defund the whole thing and then start over again. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a very, very long journey. What it feels like is at the center of that is the idea of dehumanization. And you wrote a fantastic Facebook post recently on the launch of uh, your book in the US, where you said, if you don't look at the people you're policing as human, then you begin to treat them inhumanely. And equally, don't you think the protesters 
And it's difficult to say, but don't you think the protesters have to also have empathy with the police? We've seen successful de-escalation when the police have had empathy, and that's created empathy in the protesters. We've seen police, for example, uh, kneel, and we've seen successful de-escalation when that occurs. So how do you think uh, yes. empathy is the way out rather than escalation, a, yeah. a form of de-escalation through acknowledging our human kindness? I totally agree. And I think that's actually what's happening. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority, can't emphasize this enough, of protesters is peaceful. Yep. And even with the protesters who are peaceful, you know, I just saw this tweet today of the son of Martin Luther King who said, I will never condone violence. You know, never. I will never justify it. But I can understand it, right? I mean, it is understandable. Uh, Martin Luther King himself said that a riot is the language of the unheard. And the real perpetrators here are obviously those at the top. It's such a dark truth about us as a species that we can become these monsters who put our knee on someone else's neck and just do it for more than eight minutes and just totally dehumanize someone and just, just do something like that. There's a long and complex road to that, though. Some people sort of were quoting the Stanford prison experiment as an example of, oh, this just happens. You put someone in a uniform and then they become these killer cops. I don't think that's true. And in my book, I have a chapter about the Stanford prison experiment where I try to show that actually it was a hoax. You know, it shouldn't be used in, in textbooks anymore because these students were specifically instructed to be as sadistic as possible. Many of them said they didn't want to do it. And then the researcher, Philip Zimbardo, said, come on, you got to do it because I need these results. So it's like fake science uh, shouldn't use it anymore. But then still, we know that it can happen. People can become really sadistic. And often they destroy something within themselves as well. This is something we know from uh, wars. So take the war in Vietnam. Soldiers who went to Vietnam were much better brainwashed and conditioned than soldiers in the Second World War. So many of them came back and had actually succeeded in killing someone else. And what did they get? PTSD. So they were traumatized uh, because we're just not born to do this. Sex is something we intuitively like because it's good for the species, right? And we survive as a species. Eat, eating food is also something we intuitively like, and it makes sense. Now, violence, we're capable of the most horrific violence, but often, you know, we destroy something within ourselves as well, which suggests to me that even though we're capable of it, we're not born to do it. To some degree, should we be just more aware of ourselves, our own acts and our own behavior. You say in the book, one way out of a lot of the situations we find ourselves in in society is through engaging in non-complementary behavior. In other words, to turn the other cheek. And what would a society where we did that, a society based on trust, mm -hmm. actually look like? Do you think we can ever get there or is it a very hard road? Well, some places are already there. So I talked about the Norwegian prisons. These are like non-complementary institutions where indeed you have people who did terrible things. You know, they murdered other people. They, they sometimes raped other people. Um, these are not like nice guys or anything. But then the Norwegians say that they don't want to sink to their level, right? So they, they're punished, obviously. They lose their freedom, so they have to stay in the prison. But then in that prison, what the Norwegians try and do is to make citizens out of them who become, you know, law-abiding, tax-paying, etc. That takes real courage to do something like that. You go against your immediate intuition, right? Your immediate intuition is you want vengeance. You want, like, you want sort of this immediate justice. But sometimes 
real justice uh, looks very differently, I think. Sort of about really trying to heal something there. And uh, yeah, I think that this is, a, this is a good example of how you could do that. Well, we have another question from uh, YouTube, this time from Bruce Duncan, who's asking about some of the antidotes to uh, selfishness. And in what way, Rutger, do you believe that listening plays a role as an antidote to selfishness? I guess in the book, you talk about uh, some of the rules that you have for how we can move towards a more kind of society. And one of those is uh, being uh, more passionate mm -hmm. and understanding the importance of passion over something like empathy. So I guess... Uh, how would that operate? How can we achieve a more compassionate society? So there's this golden rule that you find within so many of the world's religions and philosophies, which is something like, do not do unto others what you don't want to do. You don't want to do them, do it to you, right? I don't know the exact phrasing in English. I don't know it in Dutch. But I mean, everyone knows this. And so many parents teach it to their children. Now, it's a really good rule, but it's not, it, it, we could improve it a little bit. There's also something called the platinum rule. And that rule recognizes that we often don't know what the other person wants, right? Actually, the taste of that other person may be different. So maybe what you want is not the same thing as that other person wants. And so how do you find out? Ask questions, you know? I think that is... Uh, as I said, you know, I'm not really into self-help and I, I still have to learn a lot here myself. But what I've discovered in my own personal relationship is that just asking questions is, is, is sort of the best way to, uh, to deepen understanding. It's very simple, but if you really think about it, how often do you really ask questions, right? Do you really do that? I think uh, that should be like a, maybe a subject in school, sort of the art of asking questions. I host a podcast, <laughs> so I have to spend my life asking yeah. questions. Um, we, we have a, and I, I mean, I'm in such a terrible situation. I only have to give answers all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, thank goodness yeah. you're giving the answers. Yeah. Um, we, we have another question from uh, uh, YouTube, because mm -hmm. it feels like the discussion that we've had has really been a, a macro discussion. Mm -hmm. And if we want to zoom down to specific examples, uh, one of those is how a lot of this applies within business. And the question asked by Gabriel is, how do we break the power paradox in business systems? Uh, what is the potential and uh, modus operandi to reach the people in power and in business effectively and spark awareness of social connection? And then he just exclaims, uh, UBI. <laughs> so, uh, I like that. Well, certainly UBI would, good, would be a good start to give everyone some venture capital, right? To uh, uh, move to a different job and start their own business. But how would a business look like that if, if, we, if it really starts with the assumption that most people are pretty decent? I've got a couple of case studies in my book. And my favorite case study is an organization called Neighborhood Care, Burtzorg in Dutch. It started in 2006 with two self-directed teams and no management. And now it's the well, probably one of the biggest healthcare organizations in the Netherlands with 15,000 employees totally decentralized, no management, only self-directed teams of around 12 to 30 nurses. And they uh, decide for themselves what kind of additional education they need, how they're going to schedule their weeks. And the fascinating thing is that if you really do this properly, if you really trust your employees, if you dare to rely on their intrinsic motivation, you know, their wish to care for other people, you can build an organization that in this case 
is not only better, it delivers higher quality care according to independent evaluators, but it's also cheaper. So it's actually cheaper than the competitors because you don't need a lot of the management and bureaucracy anymore. And you can actually pay your employees a higher salary salary as well. So it's like win, win, win. <laughs> this has uh, been really a revolution in Dutch healthcare, you know, at a time when the government tried to introduce market forces, you know, more competition in healthcare. They totally went against that direction. And... Um, well, they won. You know, they really showed that that uh, that it can be done. Now, I don't think this is a blueprint. So probably it looks a little bit different uh, everywhere in education or in finance or whatever. But I think it's really inspiring, and I do think uh, the idea, sort of the basic idea, sort of decentralizing, relying less on hierarchy, relying more on the intrinsic motivation of your employees. I think that can be done in other um, organizations as well, and I think it can also be scaled up. So ultimately, what you're talking about is that we have the ability to reform things like uh, civilization and reform things like capitalism. You've been accused of being an anarcho-primitivist. That's a very difficult <laughs> thing to say. but <laughs> Anarcho-primitivist, yes. <laughs> That's right. You've been accused of that a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't really mind because I think that sort of the basic worldview or the view of human nature of anarchists is is correct, right? The anarchist philosophy is sort of two simple dogmas. Most people are decent, power corrupts. I think the only problem with anarchists is that they're not very good at building institutions. I mean, remember Occupy Wall Street. Uh, it was a very successful movement, but then it, it found it hard to make real changes because so many of these activists, they sort of, they don't really want to take the additional step of actually going in government or actually trying to change an institution. So... What I think we should do is to take this philosophy and to try to apply it institutionally. At one point, I had the idea of writing a book called The Anarchist State. Now, that sounds ridiculous, I know, because anarchists want to abolish the state. But what I mean is that we can maybe have a state that thinks a little bit like an anarchist. So what would that look like? Well, when it comes to social security, you would implement something like a universal basic income because the universal basic income, well, you need, uh, you know, a fiscal authority, you need taxes, right? You need a, uh, quite some, some redistribution. So you need a big state uh, when we're talking about that, but you can have a much smaller state in terms of paternalism. And I think that people are starting to understand this now. Our parents had these boring debates about capitalism versus communism, and they, they were traumatized by the Cold War. But now there's a new generation that sort of dares to think differently or go between the lines, right? And I think a universal basic income is a perfect example of that. It's really a marriage of left-wing and right-wing thinking. Left-wing in terms of redistribution and eradicating poverty, right-wing in terms of freedom. And uh, yeah, just uh, freedom from interference from the government there and just making your own decisions. Well, to go down that anarchist route a little bit further, do you actually think we need a new enlightenment? But at this time round, it's an enlightenment not based on reason, but one based on empathy. And do you think we're kind of halfway there? Because it feels like we're pretty heavily focused on the acknowledgement of emotions and feelings right now. Is, is, are we halfway down this, this a new enlightenment of acknowledging these very human traits? Hmm. Well, I think we need both of these things. When you're talking about those people close to you, you can sort of rely on your intuitions. Uh, it's, it's quite easy to 
be nice and to believe in the friendliness of those people who are close to you, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. And the communication will be quite easy as well because your body has been designed to trust other people, right? You can blush, you can look on another in the eye, you have this very expressive face. But when it comes to those other people far away, the strangers, the immigrants, the people who are unlike you or are more abstract, right? Then you need your rationality. Then you really need to use your rationality to remember that they're actually just like you. Some people say that, oh, Rutger thinks that people are just kind and we just need to reconnect with our inner emotions. Well, mm. if it comes to sort of really, uh, well, we're talking about the strangers and the immigrants and the terrorists and the criminals, we have to actually go against our intuitions because our intuitions are leading us astray. Ultimately, you believe that we need to see everybody is fundamentally human. And, and although that feels weird to say it, and feels so obvious, it feels like something that in society we've, to a degree, forgotten. There's another question from uh, YouTube here, which is from Alex, which seems a little fatalistic, but he's asking, uh, how do we curb corruption in capitalism with a political system that's based around elites and clientelism? Protesting can work, but with the current opposition that we're seeing, uh, the state opposition that we're seeing, do you think... Uh, in actual fact, protesting might be uh, suppressed. So in other words, mm -hmm. uh, how is it possible to fix a corrupt system within a corrupt system? We're, we're going full inception right now. Yeah, well, you need to do so many things at once. So yes, you need to protest. And yes, you need to join organizations like a labor union or whatever. And yes, you also need to vote, not only at sort of the national elections, but also the local elections. That may be even more important. You need to do all of those things at once. And we need to recognize that in any movement that tries to change the world, there are different roles to play. So often, you know, people sort of say, uh, sort of want to pick their favorite role. And they say, oh, I like Greta Thunberg. She's cool. But I don't like the Extinction Rebellion anarchists, right? Or I like the peaceful protesters, but I don't like the rioters. Or I like Occupy Wall Street, but I don't like Thomas Piketty, like the French economist. He's too mainstream, right? It's so pointless. All of these people are necessary, right? There are different roles to play in every movement. For example, in my, in my case, it, I often experience that the people who hate me the most actually agree with me on most things, right? This is what <laughs> Freud, the psychoanalyst, uh, he called it the narcissism of minor differences. And maybe I've been a bit guilty of the, of the same thing. I think it's just important to recognize in the end that we need each other. So also when it comes to, uh, you know, the world of writers and science, I couldn't have written this book without relying on the brilliant work of so many specialists. But then I think we also need writers who are zooming out and sort of trying to connect the dots and show, hey, wait a minute, something bigger is going on here. You need people who write in very, you know, obscure academic jargon that's hard to understand for most people. And then you need people to explain it to a larger audience and to make these difficult things maybe a bit more simpler, which is actually quite difficult to do. So don't try to pick a role, just uh, or say that role is better uh, than the, the other one and we don't need this role, blah, blah, blah. Just decide for yourself what you're good at and try to contribute something. Well, well I think this goes back to the idea, and you, you summarized it so well there, that when it comes to affecting change, 
what we tend to do is pick the movement that fits our identity yeah. rather than actually <laughs> just support everybody yeah, who's moving yeah, yeah, towards exactly. the change you want to see. Because in a weird sort of way, and, and, and the uh, media theorist Douglas Rushkoff has said this a number of times, that the Bernie bros would get along a lot with the Trump guys. They might be culturally very different, their identities might be mm-hmm. very different, but fundamentally what they want, which is to drain the swamp is exactly the same. So how do we stop playing identity politics with ideology? Well, focus on results. One of my favorite authors, Rebecca Solnit, she's written this book called Hope in the Dark, where at one point she writes that there is a certain kind of activism. This is not true for all activists, but there are some activists who care more about expressing their own identity than about actually changing the world. It always seems sometimes as if their activism is, well, it has become a way of life. And actually failure, losing, has become something for them that they almost enjoy. Because losing is the point, right? Losing proves that you are right all along. And the whole system is corrupt anyway. And capitalism is just terrible. Neoliberalism is, we're never going to reform it, et cetera, et cetera. And all the, everyone is blah, blah, blah. But at least you die knowing that you were right. And <laughs> I think this is a kind of cynicism that we need to reject. You know, it is poisonous and uh, it's not going to get us anywhere. And I think it's also a form of laziness. You know, it's just uh, an excuse to not ask the, the really uncomfortable questions and, and try to do your best to make some change. To conclude, ultimately, what it feels like is at the core of this book is a, is a desire to redefine this idea of realism and what is realistic. And it's one of your rules. In fact, you, you say that you know, we need to find a way in which to, uh, to redefine this idea of, of realism. So how do we go about doing that? How do we um, make some of the ideas that you're espousing in this book mm-hmm. actually possible on the ground? Well, talk about them. You know, not only viruses are contagious, uh, ideas are contagious as well, and behavior is contagious as well. It may sound a little bit cheeky, but it's important to remember that we are, in the words of Jonathan Haidt, a really great psychologist, we are wired to inspired. So Jonathan Haidt give this, gives this example of where one of his students said that she saw someone doing something really nice, right? A friend of hers who, I don't know, helped an elderly woman. And she got goosebumps, right? And had this like this felt incredibly inspired and also wanted to do something nice for someone else. And isn't that an amazing fact about the way our bodies are designed by evolution? That sort of something happens that we see like hundreds of meters or, or, or far, far away from us. We see it and we are inspired and we want to change our own behavior. I think this is exactly what happened uh, at, at the beginning of this crisis is that so many people had the feeling like, God, I want to do something, right? I want to help something. Mm. I'm, I'm stuck in this bullshit job right now. I'm writing reports no one's ever going to read. I am sending emails to people I don't like. Oh God, I want to become, become a nurse or something like that. And what I hope is that sort of this whole uh, corona crisis can also me- mean a generational change, right? If you're young right now and 2020 was sort of the, the first big thing that happened in your life on a societal level, then you can always sort of remember and think, who did we really rely on, you know, when the shit hit the fan and, you know, there was really the crisis. What was the list, you know, of the essential occupations of the essential professions? Hatchfoot managers? No, not really. Bankers, marketeers? No. No, it was the nurses, the garbage collectors, the teachers, you name it. 
So that is my hope, is that we are now going through a moment where we can say goodbye to the era of selfishness and competition, sort of the greed is good era, and that we can come out of the closet and just acknowledge that maybe we actually want to be a do-gooder, right? And that we're not ashamed of it anymore. <laughs> on, on that hopeful note, Rutger, uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you to Rutger for reminding us that most people deep down are pretty decent. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, available now. And don't forget, you can watch the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can also find out about all of our upcoming live stream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.